Paul helpfully tells us the point of his letter to Timothy at the halfway mark. I've pointed this out over the last couple of weeks. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So this, is, this letter is a practical how-to for church, uh, for uh, the people of God's family. Uh, and these things uh, that Paul refers to in this reference... Uh, uh, these things that he says he's writing are all the things he's already written in the first half of the letter and all the things he'll continue to write uh, in chapters 4, 5 and 6 as well. And as we looked at last week, the very first of these things that Paul launches into is a discussion about the central importance of the teaching or the doctrine. Uh, so if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Hi, it's Paul. Verse 2, Dear Timothy... Verse 3, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And he springs straight into the, uh, the real central big ticket item for this letter. Let's get doctrine straight. And in the particular context that he's in, let's get it straight because it's crooked at the moment. There's people leading others astray. Uh, and then the centrality of getting the message of God right flows through the whole rest of the letter, uh, but it rises to the surface several times as well. And so particularly, there's chunks in chapter 1, chapter 4 and chapter 6 uh, that talk very particularly about uh, this issue within the church. Uh, and, uh, and we've read portions of those chunks, but uh, you'd honestly be better off reading them all yourself uh, in, the, in full. So we're picking up where we left off last week to talk about doctrine uh, and in particular to talk today about false doctrine. You know, so we, we were talking about why doctrine's important, uh, what, what's the point of it, what's the fruit of it, but today we're looking particularly uh, at when it goes wrong uh, because this is the context that, uh, that Paul is writing to Timothy in. Uh, nine times in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he uses the Greek word that is translated as doctrine. Uh, in the ESV Bible that we use in church, it's mostly translated as the word teaching. Uh, not like the verb to teach, uh, but the noun, the, the teaching or the set of teachings, uh, or a bit like the word curriculum, uh, or in, in a more religious rather than educational context, uh, the word that I've put up here, the word doctrine, uh, or other overlapping words that you might find uh, in religious contexts are things like the, the theology uh, or sometimes the catechism, or, or something like that. These are overlapping words. Four times it's translated as the word doctrine. Most of the times it's translated as the word teaching, or the teaching. In chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Paul says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. In chapter 1, verse 10, he talks about things that are contrary to sound doctrine. In chapter 4, verse 6, he refers to good doctrine. And in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, etc., etc. And so uh, he, he's talking about the existence. If there's the existence of this thing that's doctrine, that's good, and sometimes good, sometimes sound or healthy, uh, then he's also talking very particularly about the fact that there's this existence of, of another kind of doctrine, uh, a different one, an unhealthy doctrine. Uh, where there's good, there's also bad. Uh, and so here's some questions that Paul seeks to answer throughout this letter when it comes to uh, what I'll call false doctrine. Uh, he talks about the, per the perpetrators of it, uh, or the false teachers, 
uh, and their motives. He talks about the content of the doctrine, uh, the fruit of false doctrine, and, the, and he offers some solutions to false doctrine as well. Uh, and as I said, there's three main blocks of teaching about this in chapter 1, chapter 4, and chapter 6. So first of all, who are the perpetrators of false doctrine? And so we're, for each of these headings, more or less, we're going to look through uh, some references in chapter 1, chapter 4, and chapter 6. But as I say, they're not going to be up there. So I'll just have to tell them to you and you'll have to find them. Uh, if we look at each of those blocks of teaching, uh, we learn that there's three things uh, behind the perpetrators of false doctrine that, uh, that Paul is talking about. The first is arrogance. The second is a funny one, demons. Uh, and the third one is greed. Uh, so arrogance, demons and greed are three of the things uh, that are working on or, or through or behind uh, these false teachers. So the first one is arrogance. So in chapter 1, verse 7... Uh, He says, certain persons desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There are people who desire to be teachers, but they don't even understand uh, the stuff they're talking about. And in chapter 6, verse 4, he says, this kind of person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. So I'm putting this, uh, uh, this under the heading of arrogance, uh, but the word really that comes up twice there is this lack of understanding. Uh, the lack of understanding, it, that probably appears in some ways more central than the pride or the arrogance that I'm talking to, but the problem isn't the lack of understanding in and of itself. It's okay to be a baby uh, and to grow. It's okay to be uh, naive uh, or, uh, or you know, an empty book that's ready to be written in. But it's not okay to be in that state and to think more highly of yourself than you are. It's a combination of the lack of knowledge combined with a disproportionate sense of one's own abilities or importance that's, that's the dangerous thing. Uh, and so it's arrogance, really. Uh, This is the kind of person who is fascinated by winning arguments and proving points, who loves the limelight and who likes the sound of their own voice. Now, this is a tricky one uh, to police against entirely uh, because the role of teacher uh, is a public role. Uh, It requires, at some level, the courting of attention uh, and, uh, and it requires, again, at some level, uh, some skill with words and language. Uh, and in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is the champion of the people who would aspire uh, to this role of teacher. Uh, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, if you aspire to the office of overseer or elder, uh, then uh, you, you desire a noble task. This is a good thing. So ambition isn't necessarily all bad. But this is part of why uh, the practice that we see in the Bible of people rising to authority to teach is that uh, they are often ordained for the task by others. They require um, the opinion, the values, uh, the judgments of others uh, to validate that position. Uh, In Timothy, this is symbolised by the laying on of hands. 
Uh, Timothy himself is prophesied and prayed over and commissioned publicly before all others that this man is approved. Not Timothy, you know, rising up on his own steam, uh, full of charisma and charm and, um, and, and, and all the rest. But actually, this is a man appointed to a task. Uh, and, and this uh, is to guard or protect, at least in some ways, against you know, the arrogant rising and pushing and shoving and elbowing their way to the top. We're still talking about perpetrators, uh, I said, in, in chapter 1 in particular, it talks about the arrogant. Uh, but in chapter 4, it talks about demons being behind uh, or at play in this perpetration. So chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Again, you'll have to look at it in your own Bible, and I would encourage you to have these words in front of you. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Well, let's unpack that quickly. Uh, who are the people referred to? It looks like there may be two groups of people referred to in there, uh, in those verses. It talks about, in, in verse 1, about those who will depart from the faith. And it talks in verse 2 about liars whose consciences are seared. Now, I'll take you on a little bit of a journey for myself. As I first read that, I, I read that as one and the same group, just described differently. These people, are these false teachers, if, if they're false teachers, then they've necessarily departed from the faith at, at some level, and they are also liars whose consciences are seared. Uh, but uh, as I read it, I, I actually think this is two different groups of people. Uh, those who depart from the faith, in verse 1, do so because they were led astray by the liars. Uh, so the liars are people who have departed from the faith, but they are the false teachers and they lead others beneath uh, and behind them uh, to depart also from the faith. And then if you have a look at those verses again, uh, it's, um, uh, yes, uh, this helps us understand the relationship of spirits and demons in all of this. Because it would appear that the deceitful spirits and demons are actually lumped in and equated with the liars or the false teachers themselves. So have a look at those words again in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. They will be led astray by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These people are led to the teaching of demons through these liars. In other words, a way to paraphrase it, in later times, some will be led astray by false teachers who lie about the truth. In a sense, these men themselves are demons. They're demonic. Not necessarily literally demons, but essentially demonic in their influence. The demonic manifests itself in several ways, sometimes uh, in these you know, uh, wild spiritual sort of things like visions, apparitions or demon possession as you read about sometimes in the, in the scriptures. But the demonic is also present in things like godliness and immorality and materialism. Did I say godliness? Godlessness. Godlessness, immorality and materialism. I don't love it when people frown when I'm talking, but sometimes it's helpful. <laughs> um, and so, in fact, as, as, you, as you read uh, the New Testament, 
uh, you get um, you get much more the impression that uh, the, the spiritual realm, these spiritual attacks of the demonic, uh, don't exist um, primarily in a demon possession and uh, and this wild, crazy apparitions, uh, but actually it is manifest when people depart from the faith and pursue things like greed and sexual immorality. These things are demonic. There's this interface between what's physical and spiritual and the two cannot really be fully separated. You also see in there in verse 2 that it says these men's consciences are seared, uh, which means that they're going to sin and not care about it. Uh, They're not going to be aware of it. If someone... uh, And so you can watch these people carefully uh, because if someone has a... A particularly sensitive conscience, then they will want to disguise uh, the things that they do wrong from public view. But a person whose conscience is seared will slip up. They must, uh, because they won't be sensitive to the things that they're doing wrong. They won't. Uh, they will lose sensitivity to those things that they're doing wrong, and you will see it uh, come out in their conduct in their life. Greed is the other thing. So this is another thing about the perpetrators: greed. In chapter 6, verse 5, it says that these people imagine godliness is a means of gain. So there were people uh, in Ephesus, in the context that Paul is writing to, who aspired to be teachers because they thought they could get rich from it. Now, that is sort of a cultural thing. Uh, it is, it, it's hard. It's funny, certainly within the Presbyterian uh, denomination and most other mainstream denominations of the Christian church, it is hard uh, to imagine how you can really make bank from religion uh, in a culture that's moving away from faith. But uh, we all know there's notable celebrity preachers and pastors, uh, people who, uh, who do very handsomely uh, and who seem driven by this financial gain that they can get. But I would say as well, um, I, d- I did not get into ministry to get rich. In fact, I took a substantial pay cut to do this. But, and so it did not even occur to me uh, that, there, uh, that there would be financial perks to being in a role like the one I'm in. But what I have discovered is that by accident, or by nature of, uh, of the role that I play in, in people's lives, uh, people trust me. And so it has been the case that occasions have arrived where, uh, where it could have been possible for me to take advantage of a f- situation financially. Um, and, uh, and I haven't, and I won't. Um, but it is really good for us to have a church uh, and a structure where finances are, mar- uh, are managed not through me, but through others. Because like I said, although I didn't get into this for the money, money does have an effect on me. Uh, Just yesterday, uh, I was involved in conducting a funeral. Uh, We've decided as a church that uh, that I would be uh, free to to provide that sort of a service and and weddings as well for free. Uh, In some sense, I'm contracted, uh, people contract me through the church uh, to do those services and and, and that's the way uh, our church has decided to manage that stuff. But occasionally people will hand me, as I got handed yesterday, an envelope with a small amount of cash in it. And although my commitment is to channel that, no one's asked me to do this by the way, but my commitment is to channel that money uh, back into the church plate, um, there is just a funny feeling as I walk away 
with an envelope with money in it in my pocket, this, it would be easier to hold on to it and no one would know. And in fact, in some ways it would be legitimate, but I just know that that's not the commitment that I've made. Um, but I would ask you, please don't put me in positions uh, where, uh, where I may be tempted. What's the content of false doctrine? This is the next question. What's the content of false doctrine? How can we identify it when we hear it? I mean, there is an easy answer, but I wouldn't want to make it too simplistic. The, the easy answer is this. Is, is it biblical? Can it be found and justified in the Bible? That is, the Bible is our ultimate standard for whether doctrine is true or false. That's an easy answer, but it, it may be too simplistic because there is dispute, isn't there, about how to interpret more particular doctrines or truths uh, and teachings in the Bible. How do we manage that? How do we discern what's in and what's out in terms of sound biblical doctrine? Uh, and how do we determine what it is that we're allowed to disagree about? It's important because one of the hallmarks of Christian community is unity. Uh, and, and unity is, is a drum that is beat constantly through the New Testament. But unity is complicated. On the one hand, unity is not the same as uniformity. So we are not all the same. In fact, the power of unity uh, is when diversity is empowered and coordinated. And so, you know, the scripture uses uh, three primary uh, metaphors for what the church is, family, marriage and body. And in a family, not all are the same. In a marriage, not all are the same. In a body, not all are the same. But in each of these uh, things, entities, uh, all the different parts work together in harmony, or at least they ought. So unity is when things that are different and complementary are combined. And so in a family, you've got father, mother, son, daughter. In a marriage, you've got male and female. Uh, in a body, you've got the power of the mind mixed with the strength of the legs and the de dexterity of the hands and things like that. So although one of the futures of true unity is difference combined and coordinated, it would, though, be meaningless to speak of true unity without requiring some elements of sameness. It, there needs to be some similarity across the board if unity is going to have any meaning as a word. And although in the matter of doctrine and beliefs there is room for difference of opinion and disagreement, there are matters which are simply non-negotiable. So how do we, how do we discover the things uh, that, are not, uh, that fall outside, uh, the things that are uh, called different doctrines, etc.? Well, you know, in this letter to 1 Timothy, uh, Paul provides a few lists, but they seem pretty particular and local. So he says in chapter 1, verse 4, people are devoting themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations. Now, I, I haven't heard people devoting themselves to genealogies. It's not a thing that seems to come up in, in our context today. But there's some other clues. So he, he, here's a couple of things. Here's three things uh, to help us identify false doctrines. It's too technical. Uh, it's too general or it's too fringy, too much on the fringe, too technical, too, too general or too 
fringy. So, in fact, I'll qualify this. This isn't necessarily stuff that's false, but this is stuff that's not worth arguing about. Uh, because this is one of the hallmarks, and we'll look at the fruit in just a moment, one of the hallmarks of this, uh, of this particularly damaging teaching is that it promotes quarrels and controversies and discussions about words and technicalities. So too technical, too general, or too fringy. So for example, uh, too technical, it's about you know, managing, uh, looking at words under microscopes. Uh, and saying, oh, well, this word means this, and so it must mean that all the time, and it must do this, and, and, and getting into finely detailed arguments, raging arguments sometimes, about very fine and minute details. Now, that would be a hallmark of the kind of thing that Paul is speaking against. We don't want people fighting and quarrelling over the most minute details that you can find. So too technical. But on the other hand, and this is tricky, I would say if it's too general then that can be uh, wrong too. So, for example, this is an example that I do see uh, come up in the church, and particular denominations of the church uh, struggle with this more than others. But you might say, you know, it's all about love, okay? And it is. God is love. God loved the world. It's all about love. But then people uh, can get too general about what love means and, and never actually be interested in defining what love actually is mean in, in the context of Scripture, and so, you know, if someone, uh, if, you know, in the case of homosexuality, you might say, oh, but, you know, it's all about love, and so therefore love is love, and so therefore, you know, anything goes. But that's not to read the Bible. That, that's not remotely to read the Bible on, on the terms that the Bible sets out. That's using a, a general principle of love and then refusing it to define it in, in the Bible's own terms. So that's an example. Or, you know, uh, therefore there is no such thing as hell because God is love, so therefore he must love everyone, therefore God couldn't possibly send anyone to hell, despite the fact that Scripture talks very plainly uh, about hell and judgment. And so uh, if it's too technical, you can get into needless arguments. If it's too general, you can get into impossible arguments because there's no common ground, nothing to find. Uh, Or if it's super fringy. (laughs) Um, So this is the stuff that, you know, it may well be in the Bible. You might be able to make a biblical case for it, uh, but these are the things that can't be easily substantiated by other scriptures. It's the stuff that sort of sits on the fringes. And this stuff really is the playground of false teachers and the kinds of people who enjoy enjoy courting controversy and drawing attention to themselves. Uh, Emerging uh, in the, the, I think, about the second century uh, after Jesus Christ with this this, uh, false teaching called Gnosticism, uh, where teachers would claim to have a special secret knowledge that only they could derive. Uh, And they were drawing people away from the core central truths of Christianity into, uh, you know, their own cults, I guess, essentially, uh, of, um, of feeling cleverer than everyone else because they've derived this particular knowledge that they've been taught about. You know, and it seems to make sense and some sort of logic or it seems clever or feels powerful because I know something you don't know. That's the playground of false teachers. It's like, uh, I couldn't think of an example, but it's like, uh, you know, a TV show or a sitcom uh, that has, you know, the canonical main characters and then there's the spin-offs that, you know, there's a favourite character who then produces their own TV show. Uh, and, um, and and there's the spin-offs, uh, Gnosticism, and and you know, and and its derivatives, uh, and this sort of stuff is, is kind of like the people who are fascinated with the spin-offs, without coming back to the canon, 
Uh, what is Scripture? What, does, uh, what is the main central stuff of Scripture? So a couple of examples of this sort of stuff. I, I think some end times teaching can really easily fall in uh, to this category. A very detailed fascination uh, with things that are very difficult, really, uh, to, uh, to pin down uh, as we measure them against multiple scriptures. And, and particularly end time stuff is the stuff that seems to shift from generation to generation. Um, teaching about angels as well is, is stuff, uh, you know, and spirits and things. Uh, things that, are, strangely, the Bible does not give us a great amount of detail on. But people who get really fascinated in, uh, in certain aspects of the spiritual realm uh, and uh, talk of spiritual warfare and stuff like that, it, it, it's a playground for this kind of controversial, very clever kind of uh, false teaching. This is the stuff that uh, produces controversy, which is you know, why we then move on to talk about the fruit of false doctrine. So that's the third point up there. Uh, as we talked about last week, the, the point of good teaching and good doctrine is to produce the fruit of love and faith. And so, uh, because this is what uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Good doctrine will produce love. Uh, in fact, that's what he goes on to say uh, when he talks about his own journey of discovery, uh, when Jesus revealed himself, uh, the risen Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Uh, Paul says that that awoke in, that awoke in him uh, a combination of love uh, and grace. He, there was a character change in him as he, as he was drawn to the truth. The fruit of false doctrine uh, is the opposite. Uh, in chapter 6, Verse 4 in particular, it goes into some detail on that. And, and, and I guess in some ways I've already spelt it out. There's an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce, right, the fruit. It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. False teaching, fascinated, you know, with either the details uh, and, and, and proving cleverness and earning stripes. This is the stuff that uh, it doesn't produce health. It doesn't promote unity. It doesn't court love. It actually leads to arguments and disputes in the church. Envy, because everyone wants to be a little bit cleverer than the other person. Quarrels about words. This is that, you know, this detailed fascination. Even slander. So what's the solution? Last point. What's the solution uh, to all of this? The difficulty is, and maybe you've already been thinking some of this through, the difficulty is that part of the nature of the fruit of false doctrine is controversy and quarrels. And the cure is going to involve some dispute some disagreement. The cure for false teaching can sometimes feel much the same. There's conflict and disagreement. So how do we know, if, we're, if we find ourselves in a conflict, how do we know whether, uh, you know, who's on the side of the angels? Who's producing an argument from nothing? And who's picking a fight that needed to be picked? Who's, who's fighting for the cause that needs fighting for?
It's pretty hard sometimes. Uh, and sometimes there's no clear answer. And then sometimes what it's just going to require is individuals reading the Bible and acting in good conscience. But here's a few things. <clears throat> in one sense, in almost every sense, the best cure or the best solution is actually a defence, a proactive defence against false teaching, being proactive with good teaching. And so if we work sort of back through points one, two and three, we start with the perpetrators. And instead of uh, promoting perpetrators of false teaching or people who are proud or greedy, then we promote and carefully appoint people of good character, people who are trustworthy, people who manage, you know, have runs on the board for managing scripture well and managing their family well. People who are above reproach, people who have good reputation and references. Part of the problem, part of the, the fight that Timothy's getting into uh, is that uh, these people have risen to the top uh, not this way. Uh, and so he has, to, he has to try and undo it. And so instead of uh, allowing perpetrators to rise to the top, we proactively look for elders and leaders among us and we recognise their skills uh, and we uh, promote them or acknowledge them or lay hands on them or, or, or whatever it is that we do. Uh, you also look at the content of their teaching. Are these people who focus primarily on the clear, direct teachings of Scripture? Is that person feeding themselves on a diet of good, reliable teaching? We, look, we pay attention to the content of, the word, of their teaching and their words. Do, does this person draw us constantly back to the glory of God and salvation in Jesus Christ? If they spend all of their time around the edges, then they may not be a false teacher as such, but we're heading into sketchy territory. And we look at fruit. We look at the fruit of these people and, and, and we look at uh, what the teaching of this person produces in other people. Is it producing fruit? Is it producing godliness? Is it producing particularly love? But as I say, it's not always as simple as that. It's not always as simple as you know, getting in first and getting things right. Sometimes there's some undoing to be done. Uh, like in the case of Paul writing to Timothy here. And so in, you know, in the trenches, in the muck of infighting within churches, here's just a few little principles uh, that I think are worth applying. We confront disputes with courage. We must uh, confront, sorry, uh, false teaching with courage. Uh, and that seems to be uh, Paul's urgent charge to Timothy. You must confront this stuff and you must have courage, particularly if it's harmful. But, as I say, it's not always possible to know what is and what's not. Or it's not sorry, I think it's possible. It's not always easy to know uh, what needs a fight and what needs peace. So apply this principle then. We confront disputes or we confront uh, these situations with love. Always confront others with love. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we can't disagree or that we mustn't sometimes disagree, but we must always love even our enemies. We manage these things with prayer. Disputes must be confronted with prayer. And when we see this actually in particular, and we'll look at this in a different context, but uh, in chapter... Now, I'm just not going to put my eyes on it when I want to, but uh, Paul says, uh, I I desire... Actually, it's going to be chapter 2. First of all, then... I urge that prayers and thanksgivings be made for all people. Here we are, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. We get this idea, isn't there, that there's anger and quarrelling in the church and so the lifting of hands could well be that sort of lifting to fight. But instead of lifting hands in a dispute, he wants us to lift our hands in prayer. We need to wade into these disputes with prayer. Uh, Prayer first, words and arguments second. And we manage these disputes in the context of a church with wisdom. Because like I said, it is just not always easy to know. You know, I say we, we try to stick to uh, the central, core, undisputable tenets of the faith and the teaching. And we pay less attention, but still important attention, to uh, other possible areas of difference. And then there's this circle or ripple that moves outwards. But we're all going to draw our lines in slightly different places and we just, this side of heaven, we just can't possibly resolve all of those things. And so we do need to wade into these things, uh, applying judgment. Uh, and sorry, when I, when I say judgment, I mean applying, uh, weighing the balances, looking at fours and against, uh, and applying particularly wisdom is the word that I mean uh, and the wisdom that comes from God. We must always keep the main thing, the main thing. The glory of God. Jesus' work on the cross. And while we wait, quiet, holy living. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for the direction that you give us in your word. Um, at times, it's not as clear as we would like it to be. But Father, we thank you uh, for your wisdom in giving us exactly what we require. For everything that we need uh, for life and faith. And we thank you for uh, giving us minds uh, by which we can uh, seek to humbly discern and understand your meaning. We thank you for placing us in community by which we can discover your truth together and see things together that we wouldn't see on our own. We thank you for giving us your spirit uh, who opens our eyes uh, and gives us light Uh, so that we can see truth uh, where we would have otherwise been blind. Father, we are sorry uh, for the times in churches that we've waded with fists flying into fights uh, that should have been dealt with more graciously. Father, we are sorry for the times that we've 
shied away from important disputes that maybe needed to happen. happen. Father, we pray that uh, through these experiences and through your word, you will teach us uh, to uh, manage these things with the wisdom that you provide. Help us to honour you. Please forgive us for our sins. And we pray that uh, your truth will be proclaimed and believed. Amen.